0: about my music.
1: Well, they're perfect and succinct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Carter, for your time and for, for talking today. I really appreciate it. I'm such a huge fan of your work, so it's a, it's a real honor. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so to start, I'd love to, um, well, first I'd like to mention to any listeners, is you, you do a great job of like putting everything on your website and kind of chronicling your career. So I'm sorry if you're going to be repeating stuff. But I, I mean, I read all those notes, too, okay. and they're so in-depth and great. Um, but for anybody who, who doesn't know, I'd love to start with your kind of your background. And you, you have a very unconventional path to becoming a composer, because it was kind of presented to you, the, <laughs> the career. So, right. so how did that happen? How did that, that because I remember you were, like in, you were starting an animation a little bit and stuff like that. So go, that time of your life, what, how, what happened? What set you on this path?
0: Yeah, I mean it's uh you know I never had a particular career of any sort that I was interested in. i always enjoyed just moving from one thing to another whatever happened to interest me. In, um and I've always been lucky that interesting things would just appear. Um and certainly film scoring was never even close to something I was thinking <laughs> about. Um but uh I was playing in bands in the city in the New York City in the 80s and um just as an avocation, I think it's just something everyone in their 20s should do is playing in a band. <laughs> yeah. um, just keep adolescence going as long as you possibly can, <laughs> yeah. right? And um, one of the people I knew through that scene was Skip Levesay, he's, uh, I knew that his day job was that he did sound editing for, for film, but um, didn't know anything more about it than that. We all had different day jobs. I was a um, I was an animator maybe at that time, computer right. animator. And uh, apparently he, was hired to do the coen brothers first film blood simple and apparently at some point they asked him if he knew anybody who might be <laughs> you know, appropriate to do the music uh, and apparently he thought that my sensibilities were similar to theirs obviously i hadn't done a film score at that point but right. uh, he thought just for a general you know sensibilities were similar also even though i was playing at rock and roll clubs like cbgb's i was um, playing instrumental music sometimes so that's you know, um, that was something I did, was write instrumental music. I didn't call it writing uh, (laughs) back then, I certainly didn't call it composing, (laughs) but um, he put me together with uh, Joel and Ethan and I saw a couple of reels of, you know, a very rough cut of Blood Simple. We were all basically, I don't know, like what, we were 22 years old or something. I I, I don't even know, but um, (laughs) yeah, 24, uh, you know, anyway, it's, I had nothing to play for them really, so I saw some of what they had, went home, developed some, just what you would now call sketches. Uh, you know, played some ideas of mine on piano. Yeah. and I had some kind of synthesizer at the time, reel-to-reel tape machine. Did some, but then at that time I was really into tape manipulation, so <laughs> playing stuff backwards <laughs> and what have you. Um, and then just brought that in a couple of days later, just some ideas, some things were more like what you would expect for a, a movie like that sort of a thriller, yeah. and some people, some pieces were not. Um, and they lived with that for a while. I don't really know, You know, I think they went off, may even have hired someone else, I'm not sure, but months later I was over in Manchester, England, recording an album um, with some friends and got a call from Joel and they said they wanted me to do the music for their movie. And, <laughs> I, ha- I was passing through New York on the way. I was heading to Tokyo to, to work on animation there, on an anime. And um, so for that week in between, we recorded Blood Semple, basically used those same ideas I came up with like a day or two after seeing the movie and expanded that into a score. But you know we didn't know how to synchronize the music to the picture or anything. We would really just say, well, I think we need about a minute and a half of this and I put a stopwatch on the piano and I'd play. Um, <laughs> so it was you know we really didn't know what we were doing but this you know it's still one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite scores and I think there's a certain magic to not knowing what you're doing uh yeah which you can never Absolutely. recapture
1: yeah you can't
0: get you re, can't recapture your first ever so. i know i mean you know we'll see maybe alzheimer's or something i'll be able to uh to Hit the reset button find my way back there but um yeah so that that's how that happened they You know, all during that process, they said, you know, this movie will probably never come out. They're very honest. There wasn't really an independent film Mm. distribution network back then. Um, So we were making this movie, but, and I was, my payments were deferred payments, meaning, you know, I would only get paid if it did come out and they said, (laughs) you know, you're never going to get these deferred (laughs) payments, this movie's never going to come out. But a year or so later, it finally started showing up in film festivals and did get uh, some distribution and then other people started calling me.
1: Yeah, I remember that. It's always a story they say that they hired you because you're you, were, you were cheap. To <laughs> and it's been like the, the story they've been saying. <laughs> so if I may ask, how much do you? How much money did you get? And the end and the end of everything from that movie.
0: <laughs> well, I think my deferred payments were probably like ten thousand dollars, five or ten thousand dollars, something. But yeah, which is something. But then of course, film, yeah. you know, I mean, I get performance royalties from it, um, you know, forever, which uh, is. Um, I was actually just talking to a young composer about that because there are more and more film distributors who are trying to buy out uh, right. composers' performance royalties. I'm mean, sure you work with SCL, you know that's a, yes, yes. Um, a thing at this moment that's very um, much on everyone's minds because Netflix, Amazon, these, these um, companies w- want to try to own everything. Absolutely. Which is not a new concept, but um, they are
1: but the exhibition will be forever, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the thing. It's, uh, it's not you know, just a, a theatrical give... run. It's forever for you to watch whenever. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
0: You know, it's a significant thing that you're giving up if you mm-hmm. do um, sell that, sell yeah. those rights. Um, it's, you know, back in the 40s, 1950s, a film would show in the theater. In the U.S., composers don't get any performance rights for theatrical uh, distribution. so. You know, that's that kind of the those rights didn't mean that much mm-hmm. back then. It would show in the theater, then it would disappear, and Absolutely. then maybe it would show up on television yeah, once or twice. Yeah. But we live in a world now where uh, it's wonderful, wonderful change. That these films do live on forever, mm-hmm. and so in fact, these performance royalties are um, important. They they support my family, so. Um, yeah, you know, I'm going a little off topic here, but oh, not a, yeah. Know, that's, <laughs> but uh, you know, that it's it's yeah, it's an important thing, and it, it has to be worked out. Um, I don't think people should it should not become a standard and accepted thing to yeah. be um, selling that away. Um, but how we're going to get to that point where um, where we're not selling that, I don't know.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, another uh, a film uh,
1: early on your career uh, that I really. Well, that was Psycho Three, which is yeah. <laughs> which has had built up a, a cult following kind of <laughs> since then. And I was uh, these guys on YouTube called Red Letter Meter kind of did like a recapturing, like a rewatching all four Psycho movies. Oh, right. <laughs> and your score came up as kind of the the pinnacle of the third one. So, um, that was such an and that was like that was, again maybe like your second or third film.
0: Yeah, the, uh, Tony Perkins was directing that. He um he had seen I guess what happened was uh, Universal wanted him to make be in the Psycho Three as an actor, right? Right. He had no particular interest in that. It was, you know, not, um, you know, in a way, Psycho really kind of hamstringed his career because he, became, he was so indelibly associated with that role. He'd done so many other things before that, but, you know, he would forever be Norman Bates after yeah. that. So he thought that the one thing he could ask for was to direct it, and, and Universal really didn't care. You know, sure, you could direct it as long as your name's on the marquee, you know, <laughs> Psycho Three with Norman with Anthony Perkins. So he was directing, and um he wanted some new you know voices as part of the process. anyway, he'd seen Blood Simple," and he it was a kind of funny thing I, got, I I got a letter from Universal Pictures in some old post office <laughs> box that I rarely use and saying, "We would like to talk to you in the connection with a project at Universal." Uh, I mean, I could easily have never gotten that letter, but yeah, I, I, could have I missed that I, I called them and um and met with tony in in New York, and that was. Yeah, that was my first experience out here. And it was yeah, my second or third third film.
1: Yeah, that was very early on too. But um and you and yeah, you're from New York and you've you've remained in New York and that's been a you know, a lot of composers now I mean they're based from all over the world, but um what about New York that you love that, that you love so much that you stay there that you haven't made the move out to LA like a lot of other composers have?
0: Um, well you know, it's a it's a lot of different things. I uh <clears throat> You know, I don't really want to be in the lap of the industry. You know, I, so. I like being able to go out to lunch and breakfast. You know, people don't ask me what projects I'm working on yeah. and stuff. It's not the conversation everywhere. Not every waiter is an actor or a mm-hmm. screenwriter. You know, so, um, it's like I do prefer that. I like the weather out there better than seasons. here. The constant, yeah, the constant blue skies and, and sun just really does drive me a little nuts. I'm from
1: Maryland, so I do miss fall and seasons yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: <laughs> um, and you know, I, I mean, this is more this more true then than now, that New York was, um, you know, just really an international cultural center where people just came from all over the world. With you know, say just take music. There were musicians from all over the world and you're just rubbing elbows with them on the subway and on the street all the time and um i mean i think that's true now in los angeles it wasn't so true say in the 80s i don't think but um it seemed pretty obvious that back then that York was uh, the place to be in in music and um yeah so i just never felt really compelled and mm-hmm. i came out to do psycho 3 tony ended up doing some additional photography on it so i was out here for maybe three months universal put me up you know in a Apartment, and you know, I was a cheap date for Universal. You know, <laughs> they were like, you know, compared to hiring Jerry Goldsmith, right. you know, they could have you know had me on car- on payroll for like five years, and it would have been cheaper than hiring Jerry Goldsmith for three months. And um, so, yeah, I I was here for a long time. I hung out in Bert Berman's office. He was head of music at Universal then. He showed me how it all works, what the budgets are like, how to read the trades, and really, it was like an education. Yeah. Um, I just basically hung out. Um, in his office, hung out around the, the lot, wow. and um, and by the time that was done, I really felt I had had everything that my, I had my complete Hollywood experience, and I really didn't want any anything more.
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, let's jump back to talking about the Coens and kind of going. I mean, that's been the kind of the you know big chunk of your career, uh, and it's it's I love seeing directors and composers kind of stick together. I mean, of course, John Williams and Spielberg and as a, nice, a great example. Um, how has the the relationship changed over the years? How, how has it evolved? Has it become, I mean, do you guys are, have a second hand? What's the the process like from those early days versus now with like Buster Scruggs? Has it changed at all? Does it change from picture to picture?
0: Well, we do know now how to synchronize music to picture. <laughs> you so, learned. Uh, that's <laughs> that's yeah, good. <laughs> that's, uh, Check that off. <laughs> that's been a big, uh, <laughs> a big step forward. Um, <laughs> Yeah, really it has I can't honestly say that it's changed much. Um, That's amazing you know obviously <laughs> the the you know technologies have changed. Um, they were one of the last you know directors that I knew who were working on film cutting mm. on shooting and cutting on film but they went digital some time ago and um, and my tools, my ability to do like sketches mock-ups for them have improved because the tools have improved yeah. but the actual workflow between us, I think other than things like that, you know, the fact that I can actually like, I just send them music over the you know, internet and they listen to it and we we still talk on the phone and still sort of do face-to-face mm. um, meetings because music is sometimes hard to, I find it difficult to, if I actually try to make it all just by email and Dropbox and stuff, I do find it difficult sometimes to really know what the director is saying yeah, a, you know, yeah. they, uh, about it. So we still mostly are on the phone. Um, or face-to-face, but um, yeah, so I guess originally I'm saying it, it really just hasn't changed. I, I can't think of any way it's really changed that so much.
1: So what, what is the process? I mean, they, unless it's something like maybe Inside and Davis is probably the only film that you weren't like a part of, right, in their entire career? Or were you a well, part of that?
0: Well, I was <laughs> I was a part of it in that um, you know, they they had a conceptual framework for that film where they didn't want, they wanted all the music that was in the movie to be generated by instruments you saw on screen. Yeah. They didn't want any it's score light like coming yeah. in. Exactly, it's all diegetic. So um, so given that, and given that all the songs pre-existed, mm-hmm. um, there wasn't any place for me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but still I got a call from, uh, from Joel Saying, you know, this this whole like part of the film where they're on the road and there's they don't play any music for like thirty minutes and it's just killing me. It's, like I can't stand to hear any more like just tires on the roadway and you, you gotta come and help us. I said, but you don't want to score, do you? No, 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 we don't want to score. But you gotta come and help us. <laughs> okay. So I um I did go over to their, you know, cutting room a couple times to say you know, so what is the problem exactly <laughs> what are you hoping that i can do about How do it Do i solve it and um we would just say they're they more like you know psychological uh therapy sessions like you know so the issue is yeah. you get bored listening to that or you feel like this aspect of the character isn't like i mean anyway um so what i did was on that i did actually like say okay i don't think you know I don't think you want score, and it would be, imagine if there's no score in the first third of the movie, no score in the second third of the movie, you just want score to suddenly appear in the middle of it, yeah. but I'll go home and I'll work up some ideas, things that would, they'll work against the scene, but they're not going to be, they wouldn't work in the film, mm. you know, the, the, but, and so that's what I did. I went home and I wrote some stuff that did what they needed to in that the scenes, but um, scenes are one thing, and a film is something different. You can't just, if you've got, especially you've got the solid conceptual, you know, structure of the film, and yeah. you know you can't suddenly abandon that half halfway through. Um, I mean, I guess you could, but that's certainly <laughs> not something they would do. So, um, yeah, I I used it as I gave them basically a, con- uh, a contrary example. I showed them this is what score would be. But you're not going to like it, and they heard it, and they immediately said, "Yeah, yup, you're right. We wow. not like it." So you, but but help them eliminate that as a as a as a possibility. So
1: that you knew that what they knew what they didn't want, which is like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, wow, yeah, that's I really know. interesting.
0: And that's you know, I guess that's a good thing about a relationship like this. You know, they didn't have to like hire me. We didn't yeah. have to have a contract. We didn't have to. You know, it was really just over see them. it i can i know you're gonna hate what i'm gonna do <laughs> <laughs> do it and you know and then they hate it and then and that's a happy ending yeah <laughs> uh, but that you know that can only happen in a situation like that where you have an ongoing you know relationship
1: yeah and so what i mean what kind of directors are they I mean, because their films are so meticulously crafted down to the every word every beat every frame is so i mean what they want does it does does it Spill down to the score too, or is that more like letting you off, you know, no leash and just kind of letting you do what you want to do?
0: Well, so um, it really varies enormously in Mm -hmm. answer to that question because they do films. Lewin Davis would be an example, or um, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, where the music's basically written into the script. Yeah, right. So where those decisions have been made, uh, you know, before the film was even made, there isn't really a place for me. On Oh Brother, there were areas that needed score, so I did do some make some contributions to that. But still, that's basically a film that's driven by songs mm-hmm. that are right there in the script. Yeah. Uh, so that's one extreme where there, yeah, the music has been very carefully, you know, um, uh, planned before before the film's even shot and before I'm even involved. Then there are films like Fargo where they don't have any idea what to do. Now those are of course the ones that are most fun for me. Mm. You, know, the, you know, I think there are directors who know exactly what they want the music to be in their films. A lot of these are directors that I, you know, you know that I admire, whose films I love. Like you mentioned, Kubrick would be like yeah. that, or yeah. Scorsese. But, but that's not necessarily would not necessarily make them fun to work with as a composer. Right? You right, know, yeah. what, what am I going to do if they know exactly what they want? Where's right. where's the creative, um, uh, you know, opportunity for me? So um, with Joel and Ethan, it spans the whole, um, that whole range uh, of things. Um, sometimes they know exactly what they want, um, but a lot of times they have no idea. And um, they'll really just give the film to me, and we might discuss what the problems are. Mm, yeah. Like Fargo, the problem was, okay, we want people to believe it's a true crime and people are actually being killed when they're being killed, but we also want people to laugh how do you get that to happen to believe that a person actually died here but are willing to still laugh because of the ridiculous way in which they died it's it's such the a ridiculous device you know. opening that film so event, yeah so anyway um, we'll discuss things like that what the problems are uh, but usually they'll just hand it to me and you know mm-hmm. let me go off and try to find some solution
1: so I me just piggybacking on Fargo which is one of my favorite scores and um, so you 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 built that score around uh, him which was uh, um, Scandinavian or yeah. uh, Lost Sheep, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did, you did that with True Grit, too, with some hymns and kind of built the score around. Was that kind of, is that an interesting thing to you, to take something that, that exists and build your sound palette from it? I mean, what was the process like? With, and what made you focus down on to do that? Like, what was that decision came well, from?
0: Well, it's a couple of things. I mean, uh, for instance, Fargo, Lost Sheep actually was a folk song that then became a hymn. Uh, oh. It was developed when, when, you know, um norway was you know christianized i mm. guess you know it was adopted as a turned into a hymn but um there are two aspects i think to to answer your question i mean one is that joel and ethan just um they they love folk music yeah i'm sure i'm not Absolutely. telling you anything <laughs> you don't already know um you know they've made films that are entirely about that right yeah and um and i think that for them if you show you know when when they encounter a piece of music and you could say Oh, this is an 18th century blah blah blah, or you know, the, these you know cowboys saying this, or these you know um, or fishermen saying it. You know, that immediately gives it an authenticity for them that they just respond to. they, yeah, they yeah. that's just them. Um, there's also the aspect that I I like doing research into music, finding new you know musical traditions that I didn't know about. Um, you know, so when I went through all those Protestant hymnals for um, for True Grit, you know, I, I, I do think that's interesting yeah, and uh, to see how, okay, here's a hundred hymns, but they're also different. And most of them don't work in this movie, but here's what I, I found, a few that do. Um, I I like that aspect of the job. The I, I guess, you know, in a nutshell, I like the idea that at the end of the project, I'm smarter than I was at the beginning. Mm. Uh, so um, I enjoy the research. Uh and I do think that there's there's something you know anodyne about a folk tune that has you know survived a couple hundred years. There's something there's a reason why they do. It's like natural selection has allowed that tune um, you know to go on, mm. and um, uh, there's something special about that. And you know I can you know I feel I don't feel as strongly about the. That as Joel and Ethan do, but I do think it's true, yeah. and um, yeah. and so if I can find one that is, you know, simple enough that I can take off from it, you know, but sufficiently complex that it's you know got you know a um, the emotional flexibility to be in a Coen Brothers movie, um, yeah, that, that it uh, it's something I like too. I enjoy it. I think it gives it has a particular quality like Miller's Crossing. That's an old. Um, uh, uh, Tune called Limerick Lamentation. That's right, the right. main theme in that, um, and uh, so yeah, I, I do enjoy that. And of course, a lot of you know composers, yeah, you know, it's an old classical tradition and film music tradition too. To to go back to uh, something and work off of that, um, and I I do I and I kind of do view it from a Darwinian sense. You know, the, those tunes if you know um, can you know evolve and mutate and and, yeah, and, uh, right. and oh, it's and interesting and, because yeah.
1: then you send it out into the world and I trace I, maybe as an audience in digesting and I can trace back and discover it and kind of go back to the roots and I, I love that kind of yeah multiple layers of depth so you yeah. can enjoy it outside the film and kind of research it more <laughs> um, uh, so another film uh, just I'm just kind of picking some, some cones but the Cone Brothers but Raising Arizona was another I think such a perfect score but I mean and that was the second the second film. I mean, you went with yodeling and whistling, and I mean that. I mean, nobody in their right mind would have even thought that was like those were options. But you guys did it, and it, it worked so well. I mean, uh, and it was funny because I was uh, watching Rango recently, which is the animated film, and they definitely they definitely tempt you in there because they're, yeah, they're know, like, oh, yeah. oh, you know. <laughs> yes. But uh, well, I mean, that that film. I mean, but talk about coming up with those unique ideas and finding those unique sounds and what spawns those ideas in you so, i mean to find a yodeler
0: well i mean that one honestly uh joel and ethan i think particularly joel joel you know had been an editor a film editor before he made blood simple so mm. he was editing at that point early in their career he was largely editing the films and um while he was editing racing arizona he was he was listening to lots of different things, but what I say one of the things they just listen to is folk music. And there's this Pete Seeger medley called The Way Out There Suite that he was listening to that has, that basically is where, that's where those things, those ideas come from. That was actually like, you know, their idea that, you know, Pete Pete Seeger did this thing where he would yodel and he would whistle and he'd put in Beethoven's Ninth and he'd put in like, you know, and and he'd (laughs) compile all these different things. And the yodeling part is... Uh, is, I guess, from a Sons of the Pioneers song called Way Out There. And we were trying to find it. Cause we, we like to, like, credit, you know, properly credit Absolutely, where yeah. these things come from. So if it's not a folk tune, folk tunes, you just say it's traditional, so you can't, you know, nail down a person. But mm-hmm. this it was recorded by the Sons of the Pioneers. And we thought, yeah, maybe, you know, we could find out who wrote it. Uh, but when we tracked that back, the trail went cold because the Sons of the Pioneers record says traditional. So, you know, it's history does not record who first yodeled those notes. Uh, um, but it was really Joel and Ethan's um, idea to, to work from that. And yeah, we had to find, <laughs> find a yodeler. Which in, you know, some parts of the world would be easier. In New York City, not as easy. Um, I, knew, uh, I knew a Polish musician I worked with who was a yodeler. So first we brought in Mia Tick to try his him yodeling. But his yodeling just had this Balkan quality that I, we couldn't, you know, we, we couldn't. It just never quite sounded yeah. Western, you know. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, uh, you know. So then we actually went to, um, I think there was a show on Broadway, uh, a Mark Twain show on Broadway at the time. Um, I forget what it was called, but anyway, there was a, a singer in that show. We sort of started asking around, and um, Joel, I think, through being married to Fran mcdormand you know, had pretty good uh collection of actors that they could investigate and they managed to find this guy an Oki, an actual Oki who could yodel and he came in and he did it's pretty perfect it's fluidity and it's amazing you know, what have you <laughs> It's
1: so perfect
0: but we but it's definitely you know it's just our second film we had like the banjo player was joel neeson's optometrist the <laughs> you know the the comb player and whistler is oh, my polish it. friend that i worked with you know we just it was this whoever was at hand. That's, actually, that's, you know? like,
1: that's, know, that's like why I fell in love with filmmaking and just like just gathering what you can, what's
0: yeah, around exactly. you, and just
1: making it work. That's right. <laughs> you don't have the resources, you don't have millions of dollars, you just go for it and just make what, what inspires you.
0: And I have to say, and I'll just say, you know, at that point in my career, and in particular for that film, um, Morricone's spaghetti westerns were really an important inspiration Absolutely. because that was an example of, yeah, you've got six sounds that don't seem to have anything to do with each other. But you know you put them together and you and it's a very distinctive, you know thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. You know not like anything else, and that was that was very inspiring to me.
1: Like uh, a score like Navajo Joe, which is just like screaming and all this <laughs> stuff. I mean, yeah, it just but it works, you know. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those absurd ideas that just it just works. Um, and then at the other end, other end of the spectrum, you guys did a film uh, No Country for Old Men, which was practically scoreless. there's only a few moments. And then, of course, the end credits suite. And I'm trying to, I, the, two, the moments that I remember music is, there's a scene where Anton is driving across a bridge and he shoots at a crow. And then when Lewin Davis's body is found, are those the only two scenes that have music?
0: No, there are more. This um, um, more? One memorable one is um, in the, well uh, oh, <laughs> memorable to me. I wouldn't blame anyone for not perceiving music in the movie <laughs> at all. But uh, the gas station scene where, um, Javier Bardem's oh. character flips a coin. Yes, there is um, music there. I'm sorry. There is, you know, the trick with the music in that movie is, I, I you know, it's you never notice it appearing. It's like it, the, What we learned was that if you perceived score, mm. it suddenly kind of let the air out of the balloon. It like yeah. the tension disappeared. So uh, it's all just steady state sounds like sine waves and Tibetan singing bowls and things that you could just. You fade it up underneath the wind or the car or the sound of the tires on the pavement, fade it up so you never perceive it. Mm. In the gas station, it comes up underneath like a combination of the wind and the the sixty cycle, you know, sort of hum of things in the gas station. Uh, and in the gas station, what happens is it gets quite loud as you get to the to the the uh, coin flip, but again, you haven't heard it ever start, so it's kind of like the the frog in the in the water where you slowly oh, turn up the yeah, temperature yeah. and never know, you know, never realizes that it's being cooked. The um, and then when the coin is, you know, the coin is revealed, out, right? the music right. suddenly stops, and yeah. then you realize there was something there, some tension there, but you didn't notice it. So yeah. um, it was little tricks like that, but yeah, we, we for reasons that are still, I think, hard to understand. Um, anything that was perceived as score just made the movie worse
1: uh, it's, it's weird because like for me sk- sk- when I hear music in a film it's it lets me know that I'm watching a film it's like oh you're being told well, a story right. and then by taking that out it made the vi- even though the violence is so stylized in that movie it made it so much more I don't know gritty and real it, like terrifying like it was a terrifying tense film
0: that's right exactly and it is that film is all tension if you mm-hmm. don't have tension then there's nothing yeah. nothing there and uh and you the way you said it is exactly right. It seemed that when you heard score you knew you were in a movie, but obviously you know you're in a movie. Exactly. Right? right? It's not yeah. as though you don't know that you're in a movie, but still the score affects your brain in some particular way that mm. for that movie was not good. Um, I don't know. I I feel, I, I you know, I thought about it a lot, but I still don't really understand why there wasn't any why score had that effect. Yeah. Um, you
1: know. Yeah but then you got to do an end suite, which I love, and I'm glad I'm glad you put it on your site because it's, I love that piece. It's just, yeah, I love that piece too. Yeah. And I, you
0: know, so that was, when when we were trying to see if there was a way to have score in the movie, I actually began with that with the percussion and stuff like that. I thought, well, well, begin with percussion. You you know, that would work against the the guy walking on the you know um, uh, this West Texas uh, you know um, caliche. but. Mm. Um, it never we was never able to get it into the movie, but fortunately, I got it into the hand. Yeah, that's
1: <laughs> great. It was perfect. <laughs> um, so let's jump to another western. Of course, Buster Scruggs, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh, which is uh, coming out on Netflix and in limited theater, you know, theatrical exhibition for a week or two. Um, so I'm a huge western fan, and uh, and I love that. I don't know I I always see westerns when people might not see westerns of course you know even if it, maybe even the filmmaker didn't intend it to be western i'm like oh there's so many western sensibilities there and i, I mean i see the look of big lebowski as a western of course no country and even fargo um but star wars star wars a western in space uh pirates of the caribbean it's a western but like, <laughs> anything's a western but for for this one uh it's an anthology it's a movie made up a few a few stories so talk about the approach here and um did did, did Joel and ethan tell you why they were Kind of doing this a uh, little, little <laughs> different kind of st- narrative structure, and how did it affect your process?
0: Well, they had a lot of these stories had been around a very long time, and so they, I knew that they had some of these stories sitting mm-hmm. around. They, they looked over the years at different ways of getting them made. They didn't want to turn them into feature films, but they want that they had these short stories, and um, <clears throat> uh, in the end, I guess they they got enough of them together to make a you know an anthology feature film and um that's a format that you know a- appears occasionally in the history of, of filmmaking but it's certainly never been com- that common and um, yeah. it certainly isn't today um, but they wanted to you know see if they could you know now they had this many westerns they didn't have the last one but they had the first five together and they thought that's enough to say we've got a project, and they knew they needed, they wanted to do one more. They they didn't have a real ending yet, uh, and so during that process, you know, during you know of before they shot, but you know, still during the process of pre-production, they they finally got that last story together. Um, but it wasn't, you know, we didn't know for certain that it was going to be a single film. I, that that was always a possibility, but um, I mean, I don't think Netflix. Really committed to that until they saw it, until we'd actually done all of our work.
1: I think when it was first um, announced, it was saying a miniseries or something. Right, exactly, because like
0: yeah. it was it was the Television Division and Netflix, and so people certainly assumed that it was a television show. But I can't say that Joel and Ethan assumed that. but right. <laughs> everyone else in the world did. Exactly, yeah. Um, and we talked about you know each chapter, um, like what the we're really just like one sentence to, 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 to the conversation about this, what would yeah. work here, what should this should be, what that should be, what that should be. But the big open question was, is there something that ties it all together? Is there some common, some way to tie it all together? Like I, I, None of the stories have similar, they have, You know, there's no character that appears mm-hmm. in them, there's no story element that appears. There's sort of, a, they have two things in common. They all take place in the Old West, meaning like the sort of 1870s, post-Civil War. Uh, frontier period, and um, and they all involve, as Joel put it, non accidental death. Uh, <laughs> they have all the stories have these things in common. And um, but that's it. So in a way, they were relying, or <laughs> they were they said they wanted, they were hoping. Like yeah, say, hoping they're not relying, yeah. <laughs> but they were hoping that music would somehow you know, tie the room together. Yeah, be the unifying um, right. thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> all on your <laughs> Um And when they came back from shooting, they were even more, you know, they were even more determined that this would be true. Um, so I spent, you know, before I scored any of the episodes, I spent a lot of time just trying to find a thing that would tie them together, some theme. But they're, um, they also, they cut them in order. So yeah, they had the first one mm-hmm. cut, which all has hardly any score in it. That wasn't very helpful. And you know, but the last one, which is the end of the movie, they didn't get that cut until we'd been working on it for you know, a couple of months. And anyway, for a variety of reasons, it was very hard for me to even conceive what uh, what would tie it all together. But um, but also just difficult at a musical level to um, to come up with a something. They, every every one of the stories is, by design, very different Mm -hmm. than the others. They're like, they take place, they look different, the the story is different, the cutting is different. Uh, So, in the end, I just completely failed (laughs) uh, (laughs) in my assignment to find something that would tie them together. I I did try, and that was was the first thing I worked on. Um, And at a certain point, I had to say, okay, I just give up, because I've got to start actually writing the the scores of the episodes, and I can't just work on this one, you know, um, hypothetical uh, problem for, for any, any longer. Um, so the, be- the best I did was in the very last story, Brendan Gleeson sings a song which is um, called The Unfortunate Lad and it's this British Isles uh, folk tune that uh, I think it even goes back to like the 18th century, At least there's evidence of it having existed then, different lyrics, um, but when it came over to the U.S., it became The Streets of Laredo, which mm-hmm. is a classic cowboy ballad. And uh, so I basically took that that tune and used it in the opening and the ending of the movie, when you see the, the book, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, at the beginning and right. at the end. Um, Use that tune there. So there's at least a sense of sort of bookends mm-hmm. and uh, some sense of consistency. And, and the subject matter of the song is very appropriate to the film. It's about... Death and a particularly, um, <laughs> a particularly off-color and uh, and an, an uncomfortable uh, song about death, because uh, in the in that version that Brandon Gleason sings, it's uh, the the guy has been um, killed basically by getting venereal disease from the woman that he loves. Uh, you know, uh, it, when it became Streetsville Radio over here, it changed, <laughs> but that's what it was in um, in its older form. So anyway, that that at least presents the um, the premise of uh, you know a theme. Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, congrats on uh, um, Buster Scruggs. It's such a perfect you know uh, Carter Burwell, a uh, Coen Brothers uh, project, and it's uh, on Netflix, which is I mean Netflix is and not just Netflix, but Amazon and and all the other streaming services, HBO, are kind of um, becoming this haven for all our auteur filmmakers and, and creatives. You know, as the superhero movies have dominated you know cineplexes and cinemas and the tent poles and all that um what do you what is your take on that kind of i, I always see it as like kind of the disappearing of the middle class kind of coming to to t v and streaming and we talked about it at the beginning of the interview a little bit about the importance of getting all this right for for people working like you who are in this and making your living from it um but what is your take on this kind of new frontier <laughs> of entertainment
0: well you know i mean <clears throat> uh you know, it's you know, it's always good when someone is willing to put up the money to make interesting movies. Yeah. And um, throughout the, the the period that I've been working on this, there's always someone who shows up. You know, it'll be like at one point it was like, you know, hedge fund people who want you know who have a bunch of extra you know millions and just want to get into the glamour of it. Or it's uh, you know this this if you keep looking, you'll find someone who will fund um, your movie. Anyway, Joe and Ethan have been fortunate enough to to find that. Um, And it comes from all these different sources. But in this case, right now, uh, yeah, because of their completely different business model, Netflix and Amazon are funding um, the making of a lot of feature films, and feature films, as you say, that would have had a harder time, maybe would not have been possible to fund Mm -hmm. in a um, theatrical context, like Buster Scruggs. I can't really imagine that it would have been easy to get the money to do this if it was just for a theatrical release. Right, right. Um, so yeah, that's a, yeah, you know, that's a fantastic thing. Um, uh, you know, I saw Roma, the Alfonso Cuaron, uh, oh, yeah. film and it's just incredible. It's so a you know, fantastic film. And again, you know, you could imagine maybe some European money making that movie, but yeah, I can't yeah. imagine anyone in the U S you know, putting, <laughs> putting up the money for that. Right. Absolutely brilliant film. So, um, so you know, I think you know that that's great. Uh, where it leads, phew,
1: yeah, that's no a, one can say. I mean, I'm player. sure
0: that the people at those companies have some idea of a roadmap that they're hope, hoping for, and um, and of course, all the traditional studios are are trying to map that out for themselves too now. Um, and it seems like where we're going to end up with is uh, you know a whole bunch of streaming services, each with their own libraries. Yep. And then what's gonna happen next is then no one, because no one's really gonna to want to, like, subscribe to 12 streaming services, it's, it's gonna be like cable again, where exactly. you, like, it's, you choose you just a package of streaming of, services. Yeah, you and know, you're paying the same
1: amount a month again. Yeah, yeah
0: <laughs> uh, so it'll be the same thing. But, um, but still, you know, the, um, the long tail, as they say, of, you know, having these films available to be watched when you want, um, forever, that's an amazing thing. It hasn't, like I say, hasn't, that is not actually what's happened, but right. that concept, concept is a wonderful concept. Yes. And if we can get there, um, it will you know, it will be a great
1: thing. And shown in the best format possible in 4K and Dolby Vision and the sound sets, it's great.
0: I mean, alternative is what's going to happen, is it's all going to become more balkanized and you'll own, on Netflix, you'll just see Netflix productions. And yeah. on Amazon, you'll just see Amazon productions. And on Warner Brothers, you'll see Warner Brothers productions. And Disney, you'll see, you know, and that, um, and that there may still be you'll you'll never know where to go to see right. you know Fargo or you know or yeah because you know, who
1: owns the rights at this point and or you know. the searchers or something
0: <laughs> you know like you know the the you know these these classic films you'd love to think that they're always available to be seen when you want to see them it's not necessarily going to end up that way but right. that's a dream that for me that would be the dream
1: yeah I'm still I'm still a disc person I'm still buying Blu-rays so I'm one of the Last people. I mean, I, I, well, I, I stream. Me but, too. <laughs> and I I,
0: I, I, still have the Netflix DVD, uh, you know, um, subscription because, even though their collection of films you can see on Netflix is not that great, I'm, I'm you know, obviously they're wonderful films like the <laughs> like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, <laughs> but. But, <laughs> you know, you think of some classic film you want to see, it's probably yeah, not exactly. there. But their DVD version is. They still right. have, uh, you know, a ginormous collection, uh, DVD right, yeah. collection. And so I still take advantage of it for that. You just have to wait a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, but yeah, that's right. On discs, you still have the world that you're uh, Absolutely. available to you. Um, and that's, I think, one of the people are wondering what to make of Filmstruck, you know, shutting down. Right. And, you know, I read one forget where it was but one possible analysis was yeah classic movies maybe are always meant to be on dvd if it's a thing you actually want to see more than once maybe you should just buy the disc you know it's Uh,
1: true especially for that uh that kind of that audience because that audience that's the audience i think that buys discs for the presentation me that's me and when filmstruck came out i mean i work at a turn i work at cartoon network studios as a turner company and i remember when they rolled it out and and it was exciting but i was like I'm not going to sign up for this, and this is meant for me, you know? (laughs) I'm going to still go buy the Criterion discs. (laughs) And so I I think eventually they have the idea for their big Warner Media uh, streaming service. They might roll that into the, I don't know, but we'll see. (laughs) We will see. We will see. Um, So uh, to kind of like uh, wrap things up a little bit, I just want to touch on a few more directors that you work with that I really love. Um, uh, Martin McDonough was who's one of my favorite writers and directors working today. And, And Three Billboards was a movie that I mean, really, personally affected me. I don't know. It was it was my, my favorite. I gave it to you it was my favorite score of the year on my site that uh, that year. And um, I interviewed him, and he was really. He told me that he just he's a playwright, so he he's from the writing background. And so what it was like he told me he kind of lets you loose, and he's like, I'm not. I'm just gonna give him a little bit of direction and, and go. Is that is that was that accurate? That's
0: really true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, on on three billboards, I had to actually come back to him. It was kind of embarrassing because yeah, he, I had to go back to him and say. Martin, I can't figure this one out. Can we just talk about what this movie's really about? You know, because um, that's right. He he just lets me um, go, and um, and because I've worked on all his features, yeah. uh, you know, that's just the method he wants to you know, he likes to use. Uh, yeah, Three Billboards was harder for me to you know to to find. I have to say. Because, but that for all the reasons that it's a good movie, it mm. just covers so much material, yeah. and the characters are so true but unpredictable, and uh, you know the alliances and the plot is so unpredictable. You don't know where it's going. It just made it hard for me to say, well, what's my role here, really? Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's right. Martin pretty much leads leads me to my devices, <laughs> and I mean,
1: Imbrug and Seven Psychopaths too are also fantastic. It was really funny because I was talking to. It was a phone interview. He was. Doing it from some cafe that I was able to just pin him down for fifteen minutes, and I'm like, I'm like, suicide is a big theme in your films, uh, and he's like, is it? And he realized he's <laughs> like, oh yeah, or if somebody commits suicide in every film, and it's like it's so funny finding these like. <laughs> I made him realize that, but um, um, what about his writing? I mean, I, I, not just his writing, but I guess, and uh, uh, apply this, I guess, to any of your projects. Where does the first note come from? I mean, what what is for you that something that you latch onto? Do you like to wait for the first cut? Do you like to read the script? Do you like to visit the set? I mean, what's the kind of the, the first part of your process? I'm sure it probably is different on every film, but is there something that you tend to like, lean towards that kind of gets you going?
0: Well, I, I always read the scripts, um, partly just because I, I like scripts. I think screenplays are an interesting medium. Mm, and, yeah. um, but uh, it also, if it's a director that I haven't worked with before, the script helps me to know if it's something I won't even want to do. <clears throat> so that you know, helps me decide whether I'm saying yes or no. But um, I don't typically write any music until I see the film because there's so many different ways to shoot a script. I mean, yeah. I know that there are some directors who ask, you know, the composer to do something beforehand, and that's fine. But I know that if I did that, and no one has asked me for that, but if and if I did that, I know that whatever I did, I would end up throwing out <laughs> um, because it, it's just true that when I see the colors mm-hmm. and I see the cutting and the framing and all that stuff really... Affects my feelings about the movie that then affect the music that I'm going to write for it. Uh, so that's um, that's when I write the first notice after I've seen some cut of the of the film. I usually my process is I see it with the director. I then um, we may have some brief conversation or maybe right. not, and uh, I then go away and basically I ask myself the question. What's missing in this movie? Mm. What can music bring that that isn't there? Uh, you know, like in, in in Bruges, you know, I felt that there was this is fragility and innocence uh, to the characters that you know they're they're hard men, but what's interesting is they they have no tools to face the existential you know issues yeah. they're facing, and the, and I thought they were so sweet, and right. I thought there was actually a sweetness and gentleness that, piano that theme would that, make yeah. yeah make the movie even more painful. Um, so, but anyway, I try to, you know, yeah, come up with that. I ask myself that question: What's the thing that's missing? And and uh, and when I have a conceptual response to that, um, I then sit at the piano, typically not with the movie, and explore ways to approach that. Like, what could what could be the musical answer to that question? And then when I have something I think is promising there, then I go turn on my computer and. Um, Get the film up and put it against the picture, and try out different um, instrumentation and things like that. And that's the way that I typically work. Mm. It doesn't have to be that workflow, and that workflow does, to some extent, you know, um, dictate the type of music you're going to write. For instance, right. you know, if you work that way, I could never do um, of the score to No Country for Old Men because you know, piano, you know, is never going to lead you <laughs> to the answer for that right. movie. Um, so there types of scores where if they're more like sound design based, more sonic based, sitting at the piano is not gonna be that helpful. But when it is something that's gonna involve melody, harmony, things like that, the piano is where I'm most comfortable. And I love the fact that it doesn't have an on off switch, mm-hmm. That yeah, you know, when I have to turn it on, then I feel like I'm working. Yeah. If I just sit at the piano, then I'm feeling like I'm having fun. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and the thing that I love about your music that, and I, I use the word, and a lot of people might see it negative, but it, it, I think it's the most positive thing is its simplicity and and just the way you do theme and variation and you find you how don't know, you hone in. Who thinks
0: that's a negative? <laughs> I want some names.
1: <laughs> when people say simple, people are like, oh, it's simple and easy, but it's like I think it's so much harder to do that, and you know, you can. Have an 80-piece orchestra and really like throw stuff that isn't there, but to f- try to navigate and find something that isn't there, um, something like Carol, which I loved your score for Carol. I thought it was so good, and and um, yeah, I'm mean, just just rambling about
0: your about your music, but but uh, that's what. Uh, no, I, I agree. It. it is it is yeah. simple. I, I completely agree. I think there, um that is uh, that is right. Mm. I'm a simple composer, and yeah. That's right. I mean, that's part. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just true. Uh, yeah. um,
1: and talking about another director that you work with, uh, another favorite of mine, of course, Spike Jones, um, which, uh, you know, he's a, a local hero of mine because he's from Maryland. So, <laughs> But um, the films that you've done together, I think uh, Where the Wild Things Are, like the ending makes me cry like every time. I just because <laughs> then when you realize it's really about his marriage and his parents breaking up and all that stuff but um working with spike spike is known for of course his uh music videos of course so he has a musical ear he has a musical eye or editing eye uh, an eye for editing um uh, what kind of director is he is he is he more involved in score because he works with musicians more or is he when it comes to score which is different than a music video but what kind of director is he
0: Well, you know, my experience with them have all been so different. Honestly, you know, all the um, films have been very different. What's that? All the films are very very different. (laughs) And you know, on on um, being John Malkovich, that was Spike's first feature, Mm. and I think he really wanted. He was counting on me to kind of educate him about what music would do. He, you know, he could have gotten, you know, any pop band to do the music for that movie. uh, You know, (laughs) but he wanted he wanted to know what film score does for a movie. He wanted. He specifically wanted to go that direction. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, that was, you know, we had a lot of, we had many, many conversations, but he really, I did feel like, I don't think Spike would disagree that it, it felt sometimes like more like I was giving him a class in, you know, mm-hmm. film scoring. This yeah. is what score can do, you yeah. know, as opposed to songs, you know. And um, uh, adaptation, that was more like, the, you know, a puzzle, you know, a weird puzzle because, um, you know, that film could probably have worked without score or, you know, it, the film has so many, also it misleads you in various ways, right, right. you know, what's about what's going on but, and then in the last part becomes like this, <laughs> this fake, uh, you know, uh, you know. Um, Uh, You know, thriller. You know, and uh, it's just—it's that's a very odd one. And um, I mean, we we talked a lot about it again, but um, I don't think it was definitely very much a path of exploration, like saying, "Well, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this." We tried different things, different places. Then on where the wild things were, where the wild things are, he um, he began by thinking that should just be songs. So uh, he didn't talk to me really. I mean, we talked. He just let me know he wants Karen O to do the songs right. and it wasn't gonna be any score. And it was only after they had shot it that they began to see that there were things that songs couldn't do. There were, again, like certain things that score can do in terms of drama, yeah. emotion, um, that aren't as well served with songs. So um, I came in basically to patch up, um, you know, fill in like this area or that area. And yeah. Karen and I worked on some things together right, to right, try I to think. like keep it. Um, keep it as seamless as we could but um so the know this my, so my experiences with spike were all just kind of very, so very different yeah uh, um but he's yeah he's an amazing filmmaker I, I miss that he's not he hasn't made a feature film in yeah, a while it's been you a know? while yeah um he's of course doing other things but i, I do miss his voice Did uh, you see his apple commercial yeah, yeah so yeah. great it's
1: oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so creative um uh but um when you work on something and the creative process, of course, sometimes you come to disagreements and it will happen on films, maybe more so on like a big studio feature when things have to form a, a brand feel, maybe like on the Disney movie, of course, like you did with Goofy Movie and Finest Hours, um, or in some case like with uh, Thor because you were supposed to do Thor too, and that didn't create a difference happened. So when things like don't go, uh, when there's different opinions, uh, how do you work through? And if it doesn't happen, of course it doesn't happen, but if when, how do you kind of get to that point where do you have to compromise? Do you have to, at the end of the day, you're, I guess, working for the director. But I mean, right. how do you communicate with directors maybe that you don't have a relationship like Joel, and Ethan, you know?
0: Well, you know, um, I'll preface this by saying that you know, ideally for me, each film is its own little world, mm-hmm. and ideally the music is, you know, is its own little world too. And so, in order to, you know. Support that concept. Um, when I work with a new director, um, I try to just go with that director's approach. You know, um, I'm not going to say I think you know I know better because uh, I want this film to be its own world, a new thing. And if I have to work in some new way, that's that's fine. That's you know that might be the way that we get to this new world. Um, so I try to always give the director like you know, the benefit of the doubt. Always, yeah. I would never say you know oh I think this guy's completely wrong. <laughs> you know, um, um, so even if that's the method, you know I'm a very methodical, for instance, person and composer, and so I work sometimes with directors who are like the total opposite of that and just like to have total chaos. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I find that difficult, but again. If that's going to get us to the, you know, to the film we, we want it to be in the end, you know, maybe that's that's the right approach. Um, but sometimes, yeah, we get to the point where it's just not working. Right, mm-hmm. we're not finding music that um, that we can all agree about. Um, and uh, yeah, it's yeah. you know it's that 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 it just, literally is creative differences. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that happens, and it's um, you know I think in those situations it's usually best. If you really just can't find a thing, if nothing's come up that is working, for me it is best to just say, you know, let, we should move on. You should get somebody else. You yeah. know, there are other approaches. You could say, well, let's let's look at what you have for temp score, and mm. we'll just try to like, you know, make something that sounds like that. But why would I want to spend my time doing that? Exactly. Uh, you so know, uh, so happening. that's not something I would do. And that I've worked on films which were like that, where the temp. Um, Became the Bible of the of the film, and then you know, I just tell them um, you should just license that temp. You know, it's not, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to copy it, and it's not, you know, it's not what I want to spend my life doing, um, yeah. or even this week doing. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of ways in which it can it can fall apart, and um, and it does, you know that that definitely happens. Yeah. Um, and I've been called on to rewrite, you know, films or we do new scores for for films. Um, and people have been called on to do new scores for films that I've you know, composed, um, and um, that's, you were that's su- you were the way it is. You were supposed to
1: do Born, I think, wasn't it? You were supposed to do yeah. the First Born. Yeah, I,
0: I, you know, got pretty well into it, but Doug and I could never. That's an example where we. I didn't feel we ever had a, a clear conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't feel like we ever were really communicating about it. I didn't feel like. I mean, I love the film. I still love the film, um, but I didn't feel like he was getting what I was doing and I didn't yeah. feel like I understood what he was saying and it was um, it was just an odd odd thing yeah it, I happens. Mean, it, hap-
1: it happens and then I talked to a lot of composers about the rejection of part of the business but then it is it's everyone's trying to service the film and you know the mat- there's, there's other fish in the sea <laughs>
0: <laughs> well also yeah I mean you know it takes a hundred people to make a film oh, yeah. it's not always you know not all of those people are going to work together <laughs> appropriately that's right it's just um, that's the way that it is and yeah. it's just you know that's you go back as far as you want. The, that story keeps reappearing in this business because it's just so many people involved. Oh yes yeah. And the to figure out who's even in charge or whose whose criteria are um, are the defining ones is you know sometimes who can even say who yeah
1: especially on those bigger ones. I mean I mean yeah. you were on, on Twilight, one of the biggest franchises. You know, but I mean you had a great experience on that of being able to start and finish that. So that mm-hmm. was that was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so kind of to, to, to end it, uh, you know, you've worked from, you know, over decades in this business and uh, kind of experienced it all in all these different genres and, and seen kind of different trends coming and going. In 2018 now, looking at the film industry as it is today, what are some of the good things that you love and what are some of the bad things that maybe you're seeing that are kind of bad trends?
0: I mean, oh, it's happening right now? Yeah, like in, right um. now, in 2018. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay. Um. <laughs> Well, um, you know, I, you know, I think it's a good thing that we're in such a state of flux. Change is always good, yeah. I think, and and we certainly have a lot of change going on. I mean, I I think no one can really say what this industry is going to be like ten years from now. Absolutely. No one yeah. knows, and um, and that's pretty interesting. Uh, but um, I think that one of, <laughs> you know. You know, we already talked about the issue with um, with rights Screening, and uh, copyright yeah. and all sorts of different rights. Composers have a lot of different rights in in their work: performance rights, um, uh, composition rights, recording rights, and um, that's always being challenged all the time. Yeah. Um, it's but now that things are changing so much, the challenges come from unpredictable sources. You know, always. My never, n- no two contracts that I see are ever the same anymore. <laughs> They're all like, it's a, though they figured out some new angle every time. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's not, you know, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but it is, um, it's, a th- it's a threat. Sure. And it just needs to be, uh, you know, people need to be vigilant, I guess I'll say. Um, I think one of the things that is difficult right now um, is, uh, you know, I'm in the Motion Picture Academy and, you know, to the extent that the, the Academy Awards mean something, and I'm not going to say they, what that extent is, mm-hmm. but to the extent that they do, um, yeah, they have a—they're facing an existential crisis right now. I don't think yeah. there's any question. I mean, I think they don't know, you know, if a movie just shows on Netflix, is it a movie? You know, right. uh, you know, do they don't have the answer to those questions? Yeah. But they're going to have to answer those questions real soon, like in the next couple of years, and they. Um, they face that they face uh, obviously the diversity issue that's that's been you know very um, well described the problem's been described the solution hasn't been absolutely um, yeah. and they have they've been trying different solutions, but you know um, you know they uh, those things I think are um, it's hard to know where that's going to go I mean it could be that the whole idea of an academy which represents some standard of of the art is can't be maintained when there is this much flux. You know, it might be that that's just not. You know, uh, they. It's. You know, the the group does seem kind of. You know, at a bit of a loss as to how to deal with all all of these different issues at the same time. It's
1: trying to find their place, kind of in this new, um, yeah, in this new new era. Because I. I mean, I growing up, for me, I, I don't. Know, I feel like there's this disconnect with maybe younger generations, I don't know, I mean, I'm not old, I'm 31, but like, I grew up watching, I'm, I'm so interested in about, not just behind what, you know, filmmaking, but, like the, the art of it, I feel like when people say art, people go, oh, so pretentious, you know? Oh, but I have bills to worry about, why am I worrying about <laughs> art? I feel like, I don't know, is art like still treasured as much as it used to be, like the, the artistic nature of things and what it means to like the human condition? I don't know, but I feel like that maybe has part of it to do, I mean, I still search for that but I don't know if everyone does
0: <laughs> it's yeah I mean I'm, I'm, I'm not even gonna bite at that <laughs> yeah. one but uh, but yeah there's you know I, I was becoming an aware film goer in the 70s when it was a particular period it was mm. kind of looking in retrospect kind of a bubble but this period when Hollywood was actually putting money into these auteur driven um, yeah. films um, and that's you know an extraordinary thing but it's you know certainly not you know <laughs> <laughs> not exactly like that now, and maybe that was really just a bubble. That was some weird coincidence uh, that the people who happened to be running some studios like Paramount happened to mm-hmm. you know um, want to do that. Uh,
1: but I think it's coming back, and I think to tie it nicely is that Netflix and streaming services are bringing a platform for our, our tour filmmakers. So, I mean, I'm not just like saying that you know facetiously. It's it, I think there's so much great content on there, and it's worth these, well, yeah.
0: That's true, and it, what happens is because there's no box office number exactly. on Netflix or Amazon, yeah. um, it's not so, you know, they must have some way, I'm sure, to do the math to decide whether what they're doing work, works for them, but it's not, there is no obvious, like, Profit and loss to yeah. the to films because of their business model. They can't say this film lost money. They can't say this one made money. Right. They have no idea. Um, they have must know their viewership numbers, but they can't really say how that contributes to subscriptions and things like that. Exactly. So um, that means that there's the possibility that because each film doesn't have its own like little you know um, spreadsheet, yeah. um, that you could have more variation more diversity in the types of films that are made and what have you and and there would be room for more interesting films that's right
1: absolutely well carter i want to thank you so much for your time today This has been such a blast and and just uh so engaging and interesting so thank you so much for your time really appreciate it it's my pleasure